Welcome to Christian Curious with Dr. Haley Scott of Denver Seminary. What are the challenges we face in today's church and culture in a postmodern, post-Christian era? Dr. Haley believes that in addressing those issues, the church must adopt a missional mindset. Christianity does hold the answers to the big questions of today's culture. Let's join Dr. Haley for today's edition of Christian Curious. I have absolutely no pleasure in the stimulants in which I sometimes so madly indulge, wrote Edgar Allan Poe. It has not been in the pursuit of pleasure that I have periled life and reputation and reason. It has been the desperate attempt to escape from torturing memories, from a sense of insupportable loneliness and a dread of some strange impending doom. How do we make sense of addiction, the senseless self-destructive behavior that drives people to risk all manner of well-being, their life, their reputation, relationships, chasing a high? This is Christian Curious with Dr. Haley Gray Scott and co-host Hannah Greaser, a show where we explore some of the most pressing ministry issues of the day. Currently, we are exploring the connections between the physical human body and spirituality. Although 21 million Americans have at least one addiction, only 10% of those ever receive treatment. And the topic of addiction is not just an intellectual curiosity for me, because addiction is a thread woven throughout the story of my own life. From having a parent addicted to prescription pills, to my own addiction to marijuana in college, to marrying a recovering alcoholic, sober now for 30 years, who devotes his life to helping men who struggle with addiction. Today, our guest is has studied addiction and virtue, addiction and Christianity together, wrote his dissertation on it, and then published a book on it. Dr. Kent Dunnington is an associate professor of philosophy at Biola University in La Mirada, California. He teaches and writes in the areas of virtue ethics and theological ethics. Other research interests include addiction and, a criminal, and criminal justice, inspired by his experiences teaching in prison. He is the author of Addiction and Virtue, Beyond the Models of Disease and Choice and Humility, Pride, and Christian Virtue Theory. Dr. Dennington, welcome to Christian Curious. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, Dr. Dennington, we're so happy that you're here. And, you know, we both read your book and you know you're a philosopher and a theologian and in your book you talk about how addictions frequently talked about in science or psychology but theology is kind of left out of the picture most of the time so we're curious about what first sparked your interest in the topic yeah i was uh i got interested in the topic in a very personal way it wasn't initially an intellectual interest when i was in graduate school for philosophy uh, i had a i was i was in a kind of a spiritual crisis i had left my christian faith uh, after college and was casting about and i had a mentor who was a a long-time recovering alcoholic and he mentioned to me one uh, day that um although he was a lapsed Catholic, that Alcoholics Anonymous had become sort of a spiritual home for him. And he invited me to come with him to a meeting. I wasn't an alcoholic, uh, but I did have addiction issues. Uh, I I had been a smoker and had tried to quit many times. And despite otherwise being a really disciplined person, I had just failed over and over. So I was sort of perplexed by the power of 
nicotine uh, in my life. But I, I wasn't an alcoholic. But I went to the meeting, nevertheless, and had a really powerful experience. And not, not like a mystical experience or anything, but just uh, a, a sense of spiritual honesty and vulnerability that reminded me of, of like some of the best aspects of my Christian upbringing. And so I kept going with him initially out of just a sort of um, attraction to the spirit of the place. And then over time, it allowed me to start to think about my own addictions and addictive patterns in my life. So I had that personal interest in it. But later when I was, um, I, I then went on to study theology and spent a lot of time reading about the virtues and thinking a lot about habit and the power of habit in our life. And when it came time to choose a dissertation topic, I thought, you know, some of the stuff, most of the stuff I've read about addiction strikes me as philosophically um, problematic. And I wonder if habits could help me make more sense of what addiction is than the categories that are usually used to explain addiction. So that's how I came to begin writing about it. You know, um, Dr. Dennington, as you you know, I went to your presentation of your paper on addiction and virtue at the Evangelical Theological Society, and you mentioned something about assigning students to go to AA meetings. And so over the um, over the course of um, the pandemic, when the pandemic first start first started, I attended thirty meetings in thirty days, and I too found the spiritual honesty. Um, to be so refreshing and so spiritually renewing. And I wondered why we didn't find that in church. And it really um, resonated with young adults when I brought it up and brought up the experience because they, you know, young adults, one young adult specifically gave me this phrase of, you know, why can't we break character at church? Why do we, why can we not have this same spiritual honesty? And I just thought breaking character that is so well said in in what we see in church and um, comparing AA to 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 the typical experience of church. And so I, too, had the same experience of going to AA and being refreshed by that spiritual honesty. But there is are these models of trying to understand an addictive person and trying to understand what is addiction because I do know that Neil Plantinga sort of leans I read as the disease model whenever he talks about sin and not the way it's supposed to be as you know as the tragedy of addiction and a diminishment of the will um and so addiction is typically classified as a disease or a type of willful choice but you propose a uh, you critique these models of understanding, and I'd love to hear about how you perceive it and, you know, talk a little bit more about that, the habit piece. Sure, sure. Um, yes, you're, so you're quite right that typically there is a sort of ongoing uh, disagreement when folks talk about addiction, and the dominant view that is espoused in sort of mainstream media and most uh, books about addiction, and even uh, even in the, the way that folks who are in AA have come to talk about, or, or, or some other 12-step program have come to talk about addiction, the dominant view is that it's a disease. 
And then anyone who thinks there's something wrong with that way of thinking about addiction tends to think that the only other alternative, if you want to deny that addiction is a disease, is to say that it's just a choice. So that rather than being diseased, the alcoholic, for example, just makes a series of perfectly free choices to do the thing that he or she knows is bad. And what strikes me is that both of these um, categories really fail to map on to the actual phenomenon of addiction. I'll say first what some of the problems with the disease model. So um, the one of the problems with the disease model is that the main argument for it, so for instance, if you look at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, they define addiction, you can see this on their website, as a, a chronic relapsing brain disease expressed in the form of compulsive behaviors. And then if you dig into it a little bit, their argument for why it's a disease is that addictions cause changes in the brain. The idea here seems to be that if something can change your brain, it somehow is beyond your control. But of course, this is not the case. I mean, any any kind of consistent activity we engage in changes our brains. If you, if you practice the cello for 10 years, you're going to have a very different brain than the one you started with. So the inference from changed brain chemistry to some sort of um, determined disease is not a good inference. The same is true with genetic predisposition. There's lots of evidence that people are genetically predisposed to uh, alcoholism, for example. And it's tempting to think that if we're genetically predisposed to something, then when we get it, it's something beyond our power. But that's also false. I mean, people are genetically predisposed to be musical. But we wouldn't want to say that someone who became a great musician was determined to do so. So that's one problem with the disease model. Another is that um, for being a disease, it's striking how many people recover in non-medicalized settings. You know, you mentioned in your intro, Haley, that um, most folks never even seek treatment for their addiction. Right. And part of the reason for that is that um, remission rates in the general population of addiction are between 60 and 80 percent. So. It is true at any given time that there are a ton of people addicted in America who are not seeking treatment. It is also true that there are a ton of people recovering from their addictions who are not in treatment. So this also suggests that what we're dealing with here is something a little bit more complex and disease. Um, on the other hand, though, if you say, okay, if it's not a disease, then it's just a series of willful choices. That simply fails, I think, to map on to the experience that addicted people have and routinely described, and they describe an experience of bondage, of compulsion. Mm -hmm. One of the most striking things about addiction, which you alluded to in your, I think it was an Edgar Allan Poe quote at the beginning, is that addicted folks often engage in their substance or practice of choice, even though they're highly ambivalent about it. They don't even like it, but right. they feel somehow compelled to engage in it. So I think both the disease and will models fail. And what I found so interesting about the model of a habit is that a habit actually mediates between free will and determinism. So I'll just give one short example and then you can uh, follow up if you want. So you think about a habit like tact um, or you know, manners. And you think about if I said, okay, you've got an assignment tonight. You know, I want you to go to a dinner party. And in every available opportunity, I want you to violate the standards of tact. So I want you to chew with your mouth open. 
chocolate <laughs> food in your mouth, spit stuff out into your napkin, burp at the table. Oh, I would love to do I this with my I kids. Gave, would, wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> I think if you gave someone that assignment, someone who had been um, cultured, uh, enculturated to have tact, it would actually be really hard to do. You'd have to focus really hard. And at any moment that you stop focusing on having to violate those those protocols, you slip right back into being a tactful person. Now, does that mean that you have that you're determined, you're sort of biologically determined to be tactful? No, but it shows that you don't have the kind of autonomy over tactful behavior that we would associate with free choice. So that's what a habit does. A habit is a pattern of behavior that is learned that is deeply grooved into our brains, but that can be changed through alternative repetitive practices and that sort of thing. And I think that model actually fits what addiction is. Do you know, that actually reminds me a lot of the work of Dallas Willard and um, his book Renovation right. of the Heart would be a perfect example of, of re renovating yourself to, to have better habits. Um, and I'm too, I'm super fascinated by neurological research and, and, um, how we can actually change patterns in our brain. And as you were talking and think, I was thinking about how I changed from being a smoker, unhealthy, you know, eating, uh, donut holes and Dr. Pepper every day, smoking a Marlboro light. That's the way I started every morning in high school, Marlboro lights, donut holes and a Dr. Pepper. And now I'm a person who, you know, I've run marathons. I climb 14ers. I don't smoke. I try to be healthy. I mostly eat a vegetarian diet. And so, but that I became a different person because I started with different habits. Right. I feel like when you talk about the disease model, that's almost it's like crippling, like there's nothing you can do about it. And people could feel powerless, whereas with the and they could excuse their behavior. Oh, it's just a disease. Yeah, so exactly. But then the free will kind of undermines and belittles the power that addiction has. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So, right. I mean, one thing I would say about that. Can, can I make one comment? About sure. That? Haley and Hannah. Um, what, now, I don't want to totally trash the disease model because there's a reason that it has become so prominent. And the reason is that when we talk about addiction as a willful choice, we have a tendency to moralize it. So if, if a person makes a wrong choice over and over and over, what do we conclude about them? We conclude about them that they're just bad, that they're just rotten, that they, that they lack character, that there's nothing good in them. And then, so then we essentially stigmatize an addict as an especially immoral type of person. And I don't right. believe that for a minute. I, I think there's all kinds of reasons to think that uh, the persons with serious addiction aren't any more uh, immoral than the rest of us. So the reason that the disease model became so powerful is because it rescued addicted persons, quite rightly, from the stigma of being especially immoral. And that's why I think habit is, is a helpful alternative um, because um, I think we want to acknowledge that um, people who are 
seriously addicted do have freedom in a sense, although they don't have autonomy. They have freedom, meaning they have available to them strategies of new habit formation, right? But they also have to have certain virtues and character in order to engage in those strategies, just like you, Haley. I mean, you used your, uh, what character you had to redirect your behaviors into alternative practices that redefined your habits. Yeah. And so just how you mentioned that, you know, a person who is addicted to something isn't an especially, especially bad type of person. We also know that there's some connection between addiction and sin. And I was wondering if you could unpack that connection for us. Yeah, sure. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of complex. Um, obviously, um, they overlap because both addiction and sin are matters of habit. I mean, think about, think about what St. Paul says about sin. Why do I do the thing I don't want to do? He's, he's talking there about the way in which we become slaves to habit. So in that sense, there's a tremendous overlap between addiction and sin. And for that reason, I think that much of addiction, and I, I won't say all, but much of addiction is, is sin. Now, I, say, I won't say all because there are, there are many cases of people who are addicted through no fault of their own. You know, if you're, if you're a child who is raised in the home of an alcoholic and you have a strong genetic predisposition and your dad starts giving you beer at the age of 10 and you find yourself an alcoholic, I think it would be simply um, a mistake to think about that addiction as a sin. But most of us, I think, have some sort of moral accountability for the path that we take into addiction. But addiction is distinct from sin for a very simple reason, because sin is theological, whereas addiction is not an obviously theological concept. And that may seem simple, but it's really easy to overlook, because to think of something as a sin is to say that what really matters about this thing has to do with its effects on our relationship to God. So sin brings to the table something about human persons that just isn't there in addiction language, and that is that we're the sorts of creatures inescapably standing in better or worse relations to God. And so part of what I want to suggest is that given that addiction is so often a sin, there's something about what's really going on in addiction that we can only adequately understand when we think about addiction within the category of sin. That is to say, we can really only understand what kind of a failure addiction is when we think about it against the backdrop of what kind of uh, success would look like for a human being, namely right relationship with God. Mm -hmm. So I think part of the reason that a lot of secular discourse about addiction remains somewhat superficial is it doesn't recognize that addiction is one of the most powerful human strategies for trying to achieve some of the goods of relationship with God. It's a failed strategy. But addiction is not primarily about pleasure. It's, it's about deep moral goods. It's about pursuit of the transcendent. It's about having an ordered life. It's about these kinds of things that are counter, I call them counterfeits, to our right relationship with God. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a couple of questions that I have that come out of that. I mean, there's so much here that we can discuss and that we need to dive deeper into because of the fact that, um, you know, you argue that, that there are certain moral goods that, that come out of addiction, that we, that there's a reason why people become addicted. And yet 
we don't hear a lot about that at church. Why do you think it is that we, you know, we're, we are growing, I mean, because of, you know, Celebrate Recovery and some of the addiction programs that churches offer, but I don't know that I've ever sat in a sermon where a pastor talked about the life of an addict or the tragedy of addiction or what addiction means. Why do you think the church has not looked at that? Does that have to do with the language? You know, I think it's deeper than that. I think it has to do with what that young, that young person said when you, when you were asking about their experiences at AA, they said, why can't we break character in church? And I think, I think a big part of the story is that for many people in, let's just talk about, you know, in in America, um, Christianity is still so accommodated to the culture that the church often is a place where we go to demonstrate to our neighbors and our families and our friends that we have our lives together. and so it's a place where we earn social capital. You know, it's still hard to be a politician in America if you don't go to church. It's a way that we demonstrate our moral rectitude. And so if that's, what, if that's the role that church, in fact, plays in our lives, it's no surprise that we're very uncomfortable in a church setting when our absolute helpless brokenness and corruption is on display. And... One of the things that, you know, anyone who's gone to 12-step meetings knows that really the center of the liturgy or the service we might think of that goes on in a 12-step program is confession. That's what everyone does. Yes. Um, Everyone is there primarily to tell the story of their own failure. And instead of becoming uncomfortable... The people who are there are so desperate for help that they celebrate the confessions of others as the first step into honesty, which everyone knows is necessary for recovery, and as uh, as a sort of support, uh, knowing that they're not alone in their own brokenness. So I think especially as uh, for, for those of your listeners who are Protestants, think about the last time in your church service that confession was ritualized and made the norm instead of some uh, strange, aberrant behavior that makes everyone uncomfortable. Right. So I think that, that really one of the things that the church has to grapple with is, do we really want to be a place where week after week after week, for the rest of our time on earth, our human brokenness is on display and celebrated within the context of trust in God's grace. Right. And, and that's, I'll say one more thing about Celebrate Recovery. Most, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Celebrate Recovery. It's great. But notice where Celebrate Recovery happens in most churches. It happens on a different night and usually like, you know, in the basement of the church with mm-hmm. a group of people in the church who quote, quote unquote, have problems. I think until, until some of the work that's done in Celebrate Recovery and other 12-step programs becomes mainstream within the church, becomes sort of the substance of Sunday mornings, then addiction will continue to be treated as this problem that a few of us have, but most of us don't have to worry about. And that's what's called denial. You know, I I completely agree with you. And there have been, 
you know, I don't know about you, Hannah, but I have this deep yearning in my soul for confessionals. I see people in Catholic church, you know, in movies going to the confessional booth or I read about it in my, in books and things like that. And I think, gosh, I wish I had a practice like that. A regular place of confession. Right. And, you know, in a, in a group of people, as opposed to just maybe one priestly figure, but to do it in a group, I feel like would be very healing. And in the context of addiction, it's, I don't know, just a way to recognize that we need God's grace and that renewal can happen. Yeah. You know, well, Dr. Dennington, we're um, running up against the clock here, but I really do believe that that your work does need to be elevated. It's important work. I know that my husband has been following your he actually got, obtained a copy of your dissertation years ago and and read it and studied it because, you know, it's it's something that is, you know, in alignment with his work. He he leads groups of men through that may be addicted to alcohol, substances or um sexuality. Um and uh in a group form he does this confessional and he's really been influenced by your work and so I'd love to uh, you to just share a little bit about um, can you if people want to get your book or if they want to dive deeper into your work where can they find your book oh sure so you can find my book on uh, you know on Amazon or uh, if you go to the, the book is published by InterVarsity Press and I'm sure you can get it on their their website but it's easily accessible I think there's a Kindle version as well and uh, I think there's also if you just uh, Google my name. I think there's a couple short articles on, I think uh, there's one on the Gospel Coalition. There's also an article in Christianity Today last year that I wrote um, called Small Groups Anonymous, where mm-hmm. I try to talk about what it would look like if the church embraced a small group model of discipleship. So you just Google Google my name, you'll even find my book and some other things I've written on addiction. Great. And I also I also wrote an uh, article last year in Christianity Today on the Sober Curious Movement in which I referenced your book as well. So thank you so much, Dr. Dennington, yes. for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, it's great to be with both of you. You've been listening to Christian Curious with Dr. Haley Gray Scott and Hannah Greaser. Uh, visit our website at www.christiancurious.co to find more shows and find out more about us. That's www.christiancurious.co. Stay curious. Thank you for listening to Christian Curious with Dr. Haley. You can contact her with your comments or questions about today's show at her email, drhaley at christiancurious.org. That's D-R-H-A-L-E-E at christiancurious.org. You may also learn more by visiting the Christian Curious website, christiancurious.org. Join Dr. Haley again next week for Christian Curious on AM 670 KLTT.